Welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast. This is episode 14 coming to you live from the studio here in San Francisco, California. Working through the mid-June scaries in California. It was down in LA. The weather wasn't that great. Back up in the Bay, weather's still not that great. California in mid-June is a very, very interesting place, but we're here. We're excited, and I'm excited to bring to you all a great show today. Uh, today, I want to get through a few areas, what I've learned and the founder learnings for the week. We're going to talk about a story of a new company that raised $113 million in their seed round, taking massive dilution. But I'm going to unpack that story in only the way that I can know how to. You know, everybody's like, it's crazy. They should never get funded. What's going on? But I have a different take than the mainstream media is going to have. I think it's a great thing to do is to raise $113 million and take that dilution. And I'll talk talk about why. Also going to talk a bit about activity. One of the most important, impactful uh, authors that I've read in the past two years is Jeb Blunt. And he is a kind of a sales guru. And right now is a time as a founder, activity is super critical. So we'll unpack a story uh, for me that happened in my business, you know, based off just practicing the principles of being active, staying on top of my grind as far as outreach. And it delivers some really good things that are going to really come to fruition for the company. And so I'm really excited to talk about that. Also talk about some learnings I have with reference customers uh, and being able to have reference customers set up. So when you're a founder, when you're you know thinking about starting a company, or if you are, Reference customers are super critical, specifically when you're selling B2B. So we'll talk a bit about that. I'll kind of share my learnings, kind of what not to do. You should always set up reference customers. So we'll talk a bit about that and kind of some issues that I have with that this week. Additionally, I'm hosting a panel on embedded insurance at the OnRap conference in Minnesota. So I'm going to be in Minnesota as you're listening to this right now. I'm in Minnesota for the week. First time out in Minnesota. Really excited to get out there. This event is put on by the Generator folks, uh, so they're great folks. They have a very, very vibrant Midwest accelerator, so I'm excited to be in Minnesota. I'm going to be leading a panel there, uh, so I'll get into some of the stuff that I'll be talking about there, how I design my discussion, who I'm speaking with. And then lastly, we'll be talking about intermittent fasting for a bit. I'll give you guys an update. I'm using the Zero app uh, to get back on my intermittent fasting grind, so talk a bit about how I'm setting that up while I'm doing that. Additionally, just brought back on an executive assistant also to take away some of the workload. And then me and my wife celebrating our two-year anniversary in Calistoga at the Indian Springs Resort. Really, really great time. Talking a bit in, in the kids' corner about you know taking vacations with your spouse without the kids and with the kids and why it's super critical to find that time and find that balance. Exciting Power Pack show today. And then lastly, we have an interview with James Hawkins, who's the founder and CEO of PostHog, which is an open source product analytics company that came out of YC uh, a few batches ago. And, and James and his has, has fast scaled his company. We get into him growth hacking on Hacker News with his CEO diaries, him dealing with his daughter uh, having cancer, raising uh, consensual uh you know, consecutive rounds of funding and at the peak and now kind of seeing where his company is. Really smart, sharp guy came to us from Ireland. So I'm really excited about that interview. Other than that, always like, subscribe, comment here. Uh, if you're getting this through Substack, make sure you subscribe to the Substack. Newsletter 58 went out 
on yesterday. Excited to get back into my newsletter where I unpack things kind of in a more written format. Uh, also giving you all the content I'm producing, all the things that I'm reading, all the stretch for insights are there. Uh, also, like and subscribe to this podcast if you are on Apple or Spotify. Those are the two main places I make sure to get the podcast out every week. And I've also now launched a YouTube, which is stretch four dot YouTube slash stretch four with a four, the number. Uh, make sure to link that in the show notes. So check that out. Subscribe, comment. This is the stretch four podcast. I'm Matt Parker. Let's get started. First segment today on episode 14 of the Stretch 4 podcast, we are talking about a new story that hit the tech news media wave like crazy. We're talking about $113 million seed round funding that was announced this week over in France. A group of, fan, of French founders founded Mistral AI, which is spelled M-I-S-T-R-A-L, AI, building an AI company. These are the only types of companies that are really getting large funding rounds. This group of founders is very unique. Obviously this hit the news waves, this hit VC Twitter. Everybody had questions about why this company would be raising such a large amount of money. You know, a lot of people tend to think that because of the past and what we went through in the past two years, that this is an insane amount of money to put into a seed stage startup that hasn't even really shipped the product yet. And I think those perspectives just aren't really legit, right? So there were two different perspectives here. Jack Altman, who uh, started a company, he's a brother of, of, of Sam Altman, started the company Lattice, uh, who's pretty active on Twitter. He made a tweet that, that went fairly viral. He said that to everyone saying the $113 million seed round is crazy because it's 43% dilution. Wait until you learn how much dilution a typical founder takes across the first $113 million that they raise. He brings up a good point. Anybody that's raising $113 million total for their company is going to take a lot of dilution. Uh, 43%, which is what these guys took at their seed round, is a lot. But at the end of the day, it's just a reality. And it is the other, the other coin. Other side of that coin is Ian Carr, who's uh, also pretty active in the tech Twitter ecosystem. He said that $113 million seed round is wild. But what what might be more crazy is that the founders gave up 43% of the company in the seed, which is odd. If it's such a potential massive company, why dilute yourselves like this so early? Very weird round. Uh, so what do I think about it? First of all, I think about it in three different buckets, right? Many founders ask the question, particularly people who don't come from the, the pedigree that typically raises these types of rounds. Uh, why is a company raising this much money with no product? The second thing that I, the second lens I see this through is why is why is it good to raise this much money and take this amount of dilution? Forty three percent is a lot. Uh, I actually think it's good to do that, but I want to address that. And then lastly. Why did VCs put so much money into this particular company? There's now roughly 600 or so venture-backed AI companies. So why did this company get $113 million? So let's start at the top. Why is this company raising so much money with no product? First of all, let's look at who invested. So the main investors uh, in this round, Lightspeed Ventures, which is fairly much, you know, fairly known to be very, very active in some ways, good and bad. They've made a lot of bad investments. I uh, won't have to mention them here, but they've made a lot of maybe overly aggressive investments early. 
Um, they always have a great reputation and large funds, so it's not surprised they're participating. Also, Redpoint helped uh, contribute it to the round. Index Ventures was involved. And then this is a European deal. So a lot of investors uh, in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Belgium, and the UK also participated. So it was a well-rounded round. There's also news that Eric Smith, who's the former CEO and chairman of Alphabet, is a part of this round. So they got the who's who of people to participate. Um, and so if you're getting those type of people to invest in your company, uh, there's obviously it's more about the team. It's more about who's building the company. It's more about the name brand recognition of the people starting it than less about the product. Typically, only companies are thinking or investors are really only going to be considering your product as a part of if they're going to invest, if you don't have that type of pedigree. Right. And we'll talk a bit about like the pedigree of these folks. But at the end of the day, these guys have built up a name brand. It, you know, they don't have to show up as you know, you think about it in a sports analogy. It's like. LeBron, Katie, Steph, some of the top players, uh, you know, they're not required to play a lot in the preseason. Uh, they don't need to prove themselves where if you're a D-leaguer or, uh, you know, you're a rookie, you know, you're going to be expected to perform. You're going to be expected to show up, perform, play, uh, go to summer league. You have to do all that stuff. And it's the same way as a founder, right? If you haven't built really up a strong credibility in a specific industry or worked at one of these massively scaled companies and been on a leadership team, you're just going to have to work a lot harder. You're going to have to have a product. You're going to have to have revenue. You're going to have to have all these other things and factors to kind of prove that your company and your 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 idea is good. It's just the way it is. Secondarily, the dilution is the biggest question. You take 113 million. I think they got a 260 million dollar post money valuation. So if you're taking that amount of money at that valuation, you're giving up a lot of equity. In general, this this company is giving up 43 percent off the top. I think that is actually a good move in this current environment. A few reasons why. This gives you a massive amount of runway, right? Just talking to a friend, catching up with him, he's talking about a company that, you know, he's he's doing some angel investing in. He's like some of the founders. Last year they raised a one and a half million dollar seed round uh, to get started, and they're already pretty much like running out of money. Just the founders and maybe like one other engineer. So the problem is you raise 1.5, say you blow through that money. I mean, founders might pay themselves 250, half a million, uh, you know, and quickly you get, you run out of money because a lot of founders, people don't realize like I'm in that position myself. You got kids, you got a family, you have a certain type of lifestyle that you've established while you were working at a big company. You live in a high, high cost market. You spend a little bit on advertising. You hire a couple engineers, 1.5 million is not a lot of money. So this company specifically, they're saying, hey, we're going to go raise a boatload of capital, put ourselves in position to give us an ample amount of runway. Yeah, we're taking the dilution up front. But if you look at the market, if you look at how mega rounds are coming down, if you look at a lot of VCs recapitalizing, like, I mean, venture capital is going out to raise, you know, 50% of the money that they were going out to raise not even 18 months ago. So the capital market is changing. So if you have the ability to acquire this amount of capital, it's a smart decision, not a bad decision. It gives you ample runway. The second part of this is they're in the AI machine learning space, which is highly attractive for venture capital, but also high cost, right? The bandwidth that you need to compute is very costly. 
the actual talent that you need to hire and bring onto your team to ramp up these products at scale is very costly and competitive. Uh, these guys, particularly where they come from, they know that they know they're looking at 250, 350, 450 for each engineer on an annual basis. So when you add it out and you say you want to get 10 engineers ramping up, 20 engineers ramping up, you're typically targeting around 10 million a year in burn just on your engineering costs, not to mention your compute when you start actually shipping product and in production. So you're very much in a very, very high, high stakes, high value market. Imagine if they just took 40. If they say they raised 40 million, for an example, they raised 113 million on a $260 million post money, giving up 43%. Let's say they raised 40. Let's say they raised 40 million and they took 10% dilution. I'm pretty sure if they could get 113 at 260, they could get 40 at 400. You still need to go hire those same engineers. So raising less money doesn't make it easier to hire talented engineers in a specific space that's booming right now, which is AI and machine learning. If you're not an AI machine learning yet, the engineers are coming. You know, there's a lot of engineers right now that don't have jobs because they're not machine learning or AI uh, skilled engineers. So essentially, you're basically saying you got 40 million instead of 113. You, you didn't you have less runway. You still have a high cost. The only thing is you took less dilution. That doesn't give you any competitive advantage in this market. So they still need to go hire those same engineers. And. Who's who's to say the market won't get worse? So if you raise the 40 million at 10 percent, who's to say next year you can prove out the proof case to go raise another 60 million? You probably won't. So why not just get the 113 up front? So I think at the end of the day, uh, when I look at the menstrual story, I side more on the fact of like they did the right thing. Just right now, people people are blown away that big rounds like this are getting done with no product and that people giving up this much equity seems crazy. I think these guys are super smart. I'd really follow this company because obviously they know what they're doing. And last but not least, the third answer to the the third question, why did VCs invest so much in this team? These guys are coming from Google DeepMind and Facebook's meta teams. They've known each other for years. They're still in their early 30s. So you're you're banking on the fact that these dudes are super smart. They know what they're doing. They have some kind of unity unity. They've been in this space. I mean, these guys are easily probably clearing 400, 500 million at Google and, and Meta before coming out. So like they 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 are going after a huge market. So at the end of the day, Minstrel, I, I like what you guys are doing. I think it's smart. I think the narrative is raise less money, take less dilution. I think that's over with. If you're a founder, get as much capital as you can at the right valuation. Give yourself three, four, five years of runway to go build hire and develop your team and just ignore the noise. Good job. Kudos to, to, to Mistral. Next segment in today's episode, I want to talk about reference customers. This is an area that I've struggled at, uh, really learned about it really two, three years ago. I didn't formulate it. I didn't I didn't formalize my process. I didn't set up the proper instruct infrastructure and it really bites you in the ass over time. Um, I think reference customers are really the lifeblood of your business, especially now uh, with the way the market's rolling. And I think for me, uh, it really can be a 
detrimental to your business if you don't have solid reference customers. So how it works and how uh, I think it should work is, you know, what, what problems does it cause? So if you don't have reference customers as a founder from day one, uh, you really set yourself up for not having the social proof to close new deals and understanding the game is very insular. And by that, I mean, prospects are talking to other prospects. Even if you're selling into a massive industry, uh, particularly in a startup ecosystem, if you're selling to other startups, it's super critical to have other startups to reference. Uh, prospects talk to each other. Uh, your website is going to reflect. People are going to look at your website. I think one of the things that I always think is like, man, nobody really cares about your website, but that is where people go. Um, you have that in your domain. So people are going there. Uh, so if you do have customers and you list those customers, you got to know that your prospects are going to tap in and check in with those customers. And that can cause an issue if you don't have a reference. And they might be your customer, which means they might sign a contract, might be paying you, but they might not be a reference customer. Uh, and so something is really important to check on if you're a founder, start building that list early. I mean, now times are different, but I mean, tr probably grant discounts to refer cu reference customers. That social proof is super critical. And like, as I mentioned in the previous segment, we're talking about activity. I think reference customers kind of go hand in hand. Like you want to be able to, and, and there's a lot of nuance and I'm probably not the person to, to reference. Like what is a reference customer? What's the timeline? How you should set it up? All those are, are great questions. But there's so much value in that. And another book reference, actually one that I'm reading through now on Audible, uh, never lose a customer again. So I actually lost a customer, lost a few customers this year. And that book is super critical. I'm like, I wish I would have read this out of the box just because of this reference problem and understanding all the different emotional psychological aspects of customer acquisition and getting a customer on board. I think it's very simple. The way we talk about it in venture and e this ecosystem is like, you talk about AAR, you talk about MMR, you know, monthly recurring run rate, annual recurring run rate, churn, growth, you know, net retention. But we don't talk about it in the terms of like the psychological process of a sales process where churn, I was actually just reading a, uh, breakdown of a company that went out of business last week or a couple of weeks ago. They were previously a very hot YC company and met the founder out here in the Bay Area a couple of times. Really good dude, solid product. But, you know, as he talked about how his company went out of business, he was very transparent about the, the key problem was always churn, right? They would get hype cycles. He even referenced it where, you know, one of the Collison brothers at Stripe was mentioning his company in Twitter and on Twitter and like, the, you know, their signups went through the roof. This is they were building a remote app or kind of a remote workspace app. And then the pandemic happened and everything just goes through the roof. They get thousands and thousands of people signing up for the product, raise a super hot round. Um, you think it's going to the moon, but, you know, three years later, um, you know, they're, they're not making it. And he was like, the consistency was the churn. People would come, they wouldn't stay. And I think one of the things is uh, this never lose a customer book just highlights and breaks down the psych a lot, the psychology of, of signing customers and signing deals and 
getting customers and like the the key theme is that you know your battle is not won right like you always have to fight for that business and those reference customers are critical so like there's there's timestamps i mean if you're if you're selling in the smb or you're selling in a mid market enterprise the timestamps are different right if you if you get an enterprise like we're right now trying to close enterprise deals so one reference customer of a big enterprise can go a long way but what do we got to give up to get that reference? Do they got to work on our product for three months, six months, nine months, 12 months? Do we got to give them like a crazy discount where we, you know, damn near are, you know, serving them at a loss or, you know, break even because they're going to be able to be a reference. They're going to go through and do case studies with us. It's always challenging because you're always trying to get get these customers signed up, but it can be very difficult if they're not referencing because as new ones come on the board, and they don't see that you have strong references, they're probably not going to sign. You'll never close the deal and you're going to have that leaky bucket from the front end. There's a The churn problem is separate in itself, but to get people through the door, you want to have solid references. So uh, I'll link to some of that information. That book for sure is one that I think is highly recommended for founders. Before you even start selling, you probably want to read that book. I wish I had read it prior to, to really going out and trying to sell. Last segment of the day on the founder tips and tricks and hacks. I'm hosting a panel this week. I'm going to be out in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the OnRamp conference, which is an insurance conference uh, put on by Generator, which is an accelerator based in Milwaukee. Uh, so hosting this panel is pretty crazy. Like they, you know, it's an early stage event. They They actually said that they had open slots to host a panel and you know, generally, like it's funny because my wife asked me, like, how is this valuable for you? And I've always seen and go to events a lot of times, but I've never really been a host of a panel. I really didn't. You know, I was like, well, yeah, I want, I'm going all the way out here, so I might as well do it. If 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 it's if the opportunity's there, they gave me like four different panels that they needed hosts for. So, you know, I said I'll do is two or three of them. So ended up I'm going to be doing one hosting first time doing this, but what was intriguing about it is I'm hosting a panel with an, someone from State Farm and another company called Swiss RE. So this is an insurance conference and our topic is embedded insurance, which historically, like I know what embedded insurance is just, you know, from a high level, but I don't know like a lot about it. These guys are experts. They're in the insurance, they work at insurance companies. Uh, but I, I realized like, the value of it, because, you know, me and one of my other buddies, we always question panels and discussions and, and conferences. And there's there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there, especially as a founder. You know, where should you best spend your time? Who should you best spend your time with? Like we talk about sales stuff, activity. But I would actually start to categorize this part of the founder experience in the activity bucket if it is strategic. So for me, how strategic is I'm hosting a panel with two gentlemen from very large companies that could potentially be customers, partners, but it also, you know, talking about the reference customer, right? Where, you know, sometimes you need reference individuals. 
uh, it's almost like a networking type thing, but it's when you're hosting a panel, you're kind of forced into this room together. You're almost forced to collaborate. And so you learn about the other folks. You learn about what they're doing. They learn more about you. And then how well you present yourself and present them is going to equal more. So I look at it as a performance thing and more of like an art than a you know networking per se, because if you're good at it, you know it's going to compound. And so also, thanks a lot for AI being so useful because embedded insurance is like a market, it's a $20 billion market. And essentially what embedded insurance is, is any kind of application that you're engaging with where they're trying to sell you an insurance product. So high level for me is this, this actually event I'm going to is sponsored by Allianz, which is if you've ever bought a plane ticket on United or a lot of the uh, major airlines, they're going to try to sell you trip insurance. And that's essentially embedded insurance, right? Anytime a company is trying to sell you an insurance product when you're trying to buy a plane ticket, you know, State Farm, for example, we're going to talk about a company, one of their portfolio companies that actually tries to sell you renter's insurance directly through your rental agency, right? As opposed to you going and buying rental insurance and then showing your 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 um, landlord that you have it. So these are kind of like emerging trends and I'm just bringing up these topics and discussions, but it's also giving me great content eyes for modern tax and ways we can embed our services in insurance products, in banking products, in fintech products. We think that tax is going to take over, you know, tax is already a big part of our financial lives, but it's only a small slither because it's so siloed away from your bank account and all the other things, but it's super critical to your life, right? Like, especially when you get married, you start a family, you have all these write-offs, you start a business, like it starts to integrate itself with your, within your whole financial life, but the data is typically siloed away. So it's an interesting pr approach going to this conference. We also do a, a presentation there, I have several meetings lined up. So shout out to generator, but I would say, you know, this is something I would, put it under professional development, but it also leads to business development. So if you are a founder and you're, it's really critical to get involved in these events. I, again, I'm a learning, I'm learning as a founder, like first three, four years as a founder, I didn't go to conferences. I didn't try to get on panels. I didn't try to speak. Now I'm like, okay, like give me the opportunity, you know, Finnovate, I presented, uh, we ended up getting about 230 leads from that event. You know, we didn't win the competition, but still following up with those folks again, activity, you know, so it's always you got to always be grinding and, and just take opportunities because, you know, I was going to this conference. They were a little bit late getting things organized, but like, hey, here's opportunity to host a panel in a discussion area that might be beneficial to you and your business. And now I'm doing that. So if you are a founder in the business, the business space, you definitely need to know that the proper industry events for your your product or your service and, you know, be aggressive in trying to get to host and get on stage. I would say at this point, if you can't get on stage or you can't host or you can't present, it's probably not worth your time. So hosting panels at conferences is a must if you're a founder. Welcome back to the Stretch 4 podcast. We are excited about a guest on this week's show. 
James Hawkins, who's the currently the founder and CEO of PostHawk, which we'll get into. We're excited to have James on the show. He's had an interesting career journey, kind of an outsider into the Silicon Valley uh, zeitgeist, but he's raised over $30 million for his company PostHawk, which came out of YC, I believe in 2020, 2020's batch, one of the 2020 batches. He started out as what he described himself as a bad developer, bootstrapping a lead gen company. He then became a VP of sales at a uh, startup before founding PostHog. So, James, welcome to the Stretch 4 podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Always a pleasure. Great. So, James, let's start at the kind of antithesis of being a startup founder. You said that you chose, I, th- I thought it was really strategic. So to set this up, you said, why did you raise venture capital, which you were a bootstrapper before. The, these are the three reasons you said you chose to raise venture capital for PostHog, your current company. You said that at the time, you and your co-founder thought that no money coming in meant that you would have to be super exceptional about spending money. You also said that you would have to spend years rebuilding the same salaries that you already had that you just left behind. But then you added in this downside risk that you might not be successful. You might not find product market fit. And then you also felt that a slower pace of building a company would be really boring. Could you unpack that for people who are, you know, maybe hesitating on raising venture capital and considering bootstrapping, considering just being like top ramen profitable and just like trying to hustle so they make it versus people that are like, let's go raise a big round of venture capital and and get this show on the road. Yeah, so we started off kind of thinking, we actually, yeah, so we, we started off bootstrapping for a couple of months and then kind of, I had a chat with my co-founder and we're like, what are we doing? Like we're about to spend years and years of our lives with way more risk trying to get back to these, like we both had good jobs before and we kind of thought, even if we kind of nail it, it's going to take us years to get back to where we were. And when you, and I think in the grand scheme of things, when you look at like what are your kind of, how do startups die? I think kind of, giving up is probably the most likely cause in reality and what will cause you to give up and just getting worn down is probably the most likely cause. So um, you know, there are a bunch of other ones, but we've thought for like a really obvious way that we might end up not succeeding in some way, shape or form. So it kind of, that was sort of, I think how we're coming at it, which sounds super negative. Um, but then yeah. also the reality is the two of us are both, I think one of the things we've increasingly learned about what we're doing is it's, we sell into a bunch of industries that are extremely busy. We have tons of competition. We provide a wide platform with loads of products inside it. And each product has at least one multi-billion dollar competitor. And the thing that's kind of fun is we're like, well, like we've got all these competitors that are worth one to $3 billion, but the game we're playing is like, okay, how can we get to like tens of billions, like 40 or $50 billion kind of valuation? Like how can we build something that's the same size as Elastian or Snowflake, like one of these like game-changing kind of companies instead? And just shooting for something ambitious for the sake of doing something ambitious is just more compelling almost by definition, I think. So just making sure that like a lot of the advice, some of the other advice I've had more recently is you better make sure you like working on what you're doing. And, yeah. and so for us, this is what we found compelling. I know there are good reasons that other people wouldn't want to do this, but we just tried to optimize for something that we would enjoy, which I think is like really under doubt. Like it's just not something, I think it almost feels like it's taboo to say, yeah. like, hey, we'll be more entertaining doing this. Um, yeah. For us, um, but the reality is, if we're enjoying it, we're not going to quit. Kind of hence, and here we are, basically. No, that makes sense, and I think that that is a way to think about it. I think frame framing it in relation to 
you're building a multifaceted product that's going to have competitors and each individual segment has a different competitor, but you actually have insights and a compelling interest on into what you're building with post hoc. So maybe to start there, I know kind of, I have an idea of what post hoc is and what it does, but maybe give a high level view of kind of when you all, you know, when you all really hit a critical inflection point that post hoc could be a very big standalone company and it was solving a, a core need for, for developers. Sure. So I think, I think we knew we were onto something quite quickly. So we, my co-founder, I li- when I quit my job to start a startup, I had kind of just created a big list of ideas that I basically problems that I had encountered professionally. And I was like, okay, cool. I've got like a list of things I could work on here. And I just started, we started working our way through them. Um, and we found out that most of our ideas are bad or at least our solutions to idea, or we couldn't solve them properly or whatever. Yeah. But every time, so we wound up, I think we tried six different ideas in the first six months of working together. Um, so we're on this quite quick cycle. I was like, okay, I think the game we're playing really early on before product market fit is basically we need to build some kind of machine uh, that is designed to take shots on goal, as many shots on goal as possible. And we need to be really ultra quick and iterative. Like the worst thing we can do here is spend like just plow six months into something that we have no idea if we're going to validate it. Like basically with the game we're playing is figure out if anyone cares as quickly as possible. And what does that, what does that look like? If, if you don't mind like unpacking yeah. that for like a lot of founders or perspective people who listen to this podcast, what does it mean to take as many shots on goal? Because I think that's very yeah. important in the early stage process. Obviously YC models that, but you guys were doing it before even YC. So maybe unpack what, what that looked like on the on the ground. Sure. So <laughs> simplistically it'll be this. We'd be like, okay, crap, this idea is not working. We need to find a new one. And then within like maybe two days, uh, we'd have something else. And again, people are like, well, it's going to change your life. Like if you pick an idea you don't like, you're going to be stuck with it forever. But the reality is, well, I don't really know what exactly I'm going to enjoy until I start doing it a little bit anyway. So we can always start an idea. If we hate it, even if it's working, we could ditch it later. Uh, yep. So we're quite willing just to try things very early. Um, the way it kind of looked was in the early days, my co-founder would write code and I would do literally everything else, including like grocery shopping. <laughs> um, yeah. The two of us were the most effective in YC because we were living together and we had nothing else like we by design, I guess, had nothing else to focus on. And um, yeah. we write code as fast as possible, I would get users. Um, and the moment that a, use, a moment that someone went from interest to actually trying to use the product, we'd get them into kind of a Slack channel, and then we work with them. We would generally try and have, um, we would want to get people kind of using something as quickly as possible. Because I think another belief I've developed is no matter how much you try and validate something conceptually and doing your very best job at being a good pretend product manager, like yeah. you know, reading the mom test and that kind of book's quite famous. I still don't think you're going to learn until you actually just try it. Um, and so our goal was always like, get this into people's hands. People, you wanted to get those early stage users into a private Slack channel and then get yeah. them embedding or using your solution in some way. And that was kind of like your proof of like, are people yeah. willing to get in a Slack channel? Are they willing to try this out today? That was kind of like the first variance yeah. of, of the test. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of time frame for having a first actual product was usually around a week or maybe two oh. weeks max, like very basic. Whereas I do see other companies that take way longer. And again, some people make that work, um, yeah. but I feel like your chance of failure is much higher if that's your style of working, unless you're super experienced or like really know what you're doing. I think mm-hmm. for like Joe Bloggs average like me, um, I'm going to just need to try some stuff and get a rough idea of a game. Just like kind of, a bit like, like go out and play like soccer, football, tennis, like just get a rough idea of what you're good at. 
um, yeah. and then focus on the one you're already kind of good at rather than just like force yourself to become great at American football when you should have been like doing wrestling the whole, this whole time. So I think that's sort of how we felt about it. But yeah, I was like first week just trying to get like the product built. I would just start booking interviews and stuff. Week mm-hmm. two and three, getting people in, seeing if they stick. And week four, um, probably decide that we need to pivot because something's not quite right here or decide if we want to keep going. Yeah, very, very simple. Was there a baseline number? Was it like, hey, look, can we get 10 people to sign up for this thing in a certain sprint? Or, or was it just more in general, yeah. like you could feel the the, 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 vibe, the vibes, so to speak, of, of what people were using and if people were really liking it? Well, how did you guys sense that out? Because I know you're a very, very data, yeah. data-driven guy, so I would love to yeah. know that. Yeah, so like really early, like first couple of weeks of doing stuff, it was literally, I was like, I just need to book two meetings a day. Like, I just need to like try and get random people on LinkedIn or friends, whatever. On the, I just have that as a little target, super, very top of funnel kind of metric. I think later on, like the framework that we wound up sort of working towards at Postdoc was, well, a couple of things, I guess. Um, at Postdoc, it was really obvious. Like it was like, it was like smacking us in the face that we had a level of product market fit. Um, like we spent four weeks building the product um, mm-hmm. and getting early users. The vibe was more positive than previous ideas. Like people were like already lavishing the concept with praise, but that is kind of common. Like people are quite polite, especially the ones that wouldn't try stuff early. We put it on Hacker News, like a big developer oriented website. And then we had like hundreds of users immediately. And then that just number went up until it was like thousands and tens of thousands. And, and that, was post- so that, that was yeah. once you had PostHog out. So, and so PostHog started as this open source product where yeah. People sign up, people use it, and it, you made it easy for people to use without paying money. But I think what's really interesting about you all is you are very data driven on the the you know getting a paying customer. So how hard was that transition from like product hunt? It's buzzy, everybody's downloading it, people are yep. like it to like okay, people are now putting in their credit card information and paying us for it. Like what was that? Because that's going from product market fit with the users to yep. now like you know, willingness to pay essentially. Yeah. So I think your approach to this needs to, it depends. I think it's very important. You base your approach around like the conversion of like buzz and initial usage to revenue. Like I think it's, I basically think if you're trying to build something in a non-competitive category, like if you're trying to build something that's wildly different to everything out there, I think it's more important to monetize early. So for example, I have developed a time machine. Or something. Yeah. The first ever time in human history. I better try and monitor. I mean, okay, maybe it's kind of obvious you might make money with that. But like for something really novel, like Docker is a good example. Like monetization, you should do really soon because it might be that like this is cool and novel and kind of fun, but it's not really that fun. It's not valuable enough to pay a significant amount of money for. So the market's tiny or non-existent. Whereas yeah. I think for in our case, we we're open sourcing a bunch of software. We're building kind of an open source alternative to a bunch of software that had like multi-billion dollar companies providing pretty much the same thing, but not open source, not self-hostable, not developer oriented. And so we're a bit more confident because we kind of knew like, hey, we're kind of just like a better version of stuff that's out there instead. And the novelty is it's open source. And longer term, that novelty also became, and now we've got all the other products next door. But that gave us more confidence than normal. The way we approached it was then, okay, cool. We've got thousands and thousands of users. Um, We just need five reference customers. Created an ideal customer profile, which, it's something we did like six months too late. We spent a year and a half just working on the open source project. And then the last, most recent, like 18 months or so, what, well, pretty bit longer, 20 months or so, focusing on basic yeah. revenue growth. And you feel and like you should have done that earlier in the process? A little bit. 
a little bit sooner, um, but I definitely should have had an ideal customer profile sooner. I thought, man, that sounds like a really bureaucratic thing to do as a small startup is to have like some definition of who we're selling to. I was like, it's just developers at software companies. Like that seems really basic, but the actual answer in the end was we kind of got told to do this by someone on yeah. our board in a really helpful way. And we wound up trying to write out what we thought our customers would have in common with each other, but not just like the industry they're in or how big their company is, but stuff like, do they have product market fit? Are they using a data warehouse? Are they, have they used our free product before? Yeah. Um, are engineering making the call on this thing? Like, do they and have like, a pipeline tool? Yeah. These were, and, and so I really like that because I think this framework should work. I mean, you all, you've already put out your CEO diaries. I think so many founders fall off the, 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 the cliff with some of these questions you're asking. I mean, I even think of my previous businesses I've done so where you want to know if your customer has product market fit, right? Like you want to yeah. know if they are actually making money and they're actually working versus like just a developer that's like building some cool app that'll never become yeah. a paying customer. How, yeah. how hard did you have to push there where, I mean, I'm assuming you were doing the selling early so you could easily identify these people, but what was the, where was the friction there with like, Oh, this, this is not a prospect. Cause like they don't even have like their own business or they don't have some of these things you mentioned in your five questions. Yeah. So I, th I think the biggest challenge with it really, I mean, it's kind of easy to work it out. Like you could, again, you could get, it was just some judgment for me. The actual, but the thing that was kind of interesting was we found that I think it's really easy to get stuck because a lot of sales don't, obviously a lot of sales don't go through like the majority of pipeline yeah. doesn't normally close. But yeah. but a lot of it doesn't close negatively. A lot of it doesn't actually close negatively either. It's just like floating around for ages and you're losing time. Yeah. And so kind of what was really important is we basically started tracking everyone we spoke with, whether it went well, badly, or somewhere in between was just floating. And then we just scored them against all these attributes. And then we started looking at like the anti persona as well as the one that we fitted with. And that made it much more obvious to us. It was like, actually, you know what? Like we've been kind of debating if we care about product managers that much or like just engineers as a user persona. And we mm -hmm. like, our product manager is going to pay for it or whatever. And we just concluded like, no, we just sell everything into engineering. We focus like pretty much completely there. We have product manager users, but they're just not our priority. Yeah. And we kind of focus on companies where engineering decides what to build. Again, we sort of, it got more obvious that we should just double that. And then off the back of that, we started going, okay, so we should like, we should build features in that are very specific to engineers. We should make our website kind of like, it's not actually done yet, but it's like, we should make our website like dark mode. We should um, signify this is a developer tool in our design. We should get more information on the screen, like get rid of white space, like so many things that just make it feel built for that person. And it's okay. such a busy space. We can differentiate by being really focused on like this particular group of users. And there's already like demand for our categories of products. So just like being the best one for them. Um, mm -hmm. is why we then saw like once we got the first reference customer, which took like probably two months, we had to build a paid product at the same time. Within another month, we had a, like maybe within like another, within another month, we probably had another three or four. And then we had mm -hmm. like hundreds within another couple of months. And then it just started like our revenue started growing exponentially. It was built away from the paid product. They could just simply put in a credit card. It was kind of like they didn't have to go through like any kind of procurement or any of yeah. that stuff, your product. It was straight up, just put in a credit card. Now you get these additional features plus the open source that you can already access for free. Is that, that kind of how it started to kind of, and you took the bottoms up approach uh, yeah. in, in this area. And yeah, and this all comes from the ideal customer profile. 
It's like, okay, it's developers. It's like developers don't want to talk to salespeople. Like they don't want to deal with procurement. They want to put the card in and try it. They want a free tier. Like they want transparent pricing. They don't want to see an enterprise tier they have to speak to us about. Like we know they'll call us anyway for a huge company. Um, yeah. But like we should just be like ridiculously upfront. And I think for a while we're the only one that had pricing on our pricing page in, our, in all the industries that we're in. <laughs> So, um, like, honestly, I don't even think that's a business model. It's like, I just, like, if you're doing an indie thing, you should just build, like, a startup in a space where no one else has pricing and just put pricing and self-serve. And you probably pick up people that can't be bothered to deal with sales. But anyway, so it's like, again, this all stemmed from that ideal customer profile. Like, our go-to-market is also oriented around this user group. The way we do marketing, the way we do, like, we don't have an outbound sales team at all, for example, mm -hmm. um, because of this. Yeah. Wow, this is pretty fascinating. So you, you were able to get that going. The other part of this is, obviously, you all did YC. You raised call it more than 30 million. I don't know if there, you fully disclosed total how much you all have raised. What was that process like? Because it seems like venture now and even then, it's it's a sales process as well. You're trying to get venture funds, institutional funds to exchange cash for equity in your company. What was that process? Were you as super focused on persona in that regard? Or was yeah. it more just like, here are the top tier funds we want to work with that have companies that have you know, done well in our space or like, how were you, how methodical were you there? Well, actually, like thinking about it now, like we should have had a persona because uh, that's kind of what we realized eventually. So we did like YC uh, in, we wrapped up in March, 2020, like just as COVID was hitting. Uh, yeah. It was basically a bit of a shit show because yeah. like I felt initially just before COVID became like a real, you know, when it was still kind of in China and a bit like, oh, is this really going to have much of an impact? I was like, I'm going to get this fundraise done in like three days for our seed round. And then like literally within like two days or something, it just totally changed. And then people were just like, we're just seeing what happens. And it just killed this momentum that we had. And so, yeah, we we're just like taking small checks. Were, you, were you all one of the top companies in your bat? Like, cause I know YC has this internal thing of like, Hey, like yeah. who were the, were you the ones like, Hey, we're probably going to close our, you know, we're going to close pre demo day. Like this is going to be, we're going to hit this out of the park. Were you all in that, that category? I think it's fair to say we th I think we probably were like they don't really tell you but like the reality was there are two companies like they have like a top companies list and we were on there are only two I think by the uh, we're on they published it I think every January or something and so it's like March whatever you got until January to try and get evaluations being up to get on there and I think there are only two companies from our batch that made it and we were one of them in terms of like I think because we wound up doing like stuff then sped up a lot we got the seed round done an, a small A and a small B um, mm -hmm. within probably like in total about six months after starting. It was mm -hmm. very, very fast um, because we had a lot of traction and we had like a good, I think we had quite a compelling story to tell. Mm -hmm. The persona we did, persona-wise, I guess we did, was, I guess with hindsight, it was really obvious that like we definitely did have, a, we should have had a persona. We basically realized yeah. that some people don't invest in open source stuff. Uh, open source was like much more, it's really taken off in popularity in the last like three years or so. And when yeah. we were starting out, there were, examples, but they weren't like everywhere. And so loads yeah. of people were like judging us on traditional B2B SaaS metrics, but they're like, well, you don't have any revenue. So like you're too early. And it's like, well, we have like hundreds of like, like yeah. every week, like 40 companies. Are, uh, I can't remember what it was, maybe like four, like the week one, I think we had like 40 companies a week signing up. We now have like maybe six, like five or 600 a week, um, just inbound mm -hmm. coming in and deploying. But we're like, and we that's like 40 all, companies a week coming in. That's, like, that's all just off yeah. your open source model yeah. is like just naturally get people to come in sign up and test this out yeah um, uh, that's the other yeah. thing we looked at was like we looked at how other companies that were really successful in the open source had grown and we kind of just concluded there's not a single one that didn't spend like four or five years just getting a ubiquitous pro pro uh, project out the door first with no revenue and so we're mm -hmm. like well why would we be like 
I can see why that is. Like they're dealing with developers that like do not like being sold to. They want you to sort of prove your worth a little bit first from a product mm-hmm. engineering perspective. So, and we just need to try and do that, but really intensively and a little bit on a shorter time frame. But like, it seems kind of dumb to start doing outbound or just kill the community that we're trying to build early on. And then later on, what happened once we got a paid product was we found it was actually harder to get demand from our existing community users. So I was like, okay, we should try and like, I should try and like hustle to get some deals done with our existing community and create some demand for this thing. But all of those deals were way slower than people that just came in fresh and landed on a website that had like a commercial product available in pricing and they saw us as a more serious thing. So it was like a waste of time. It would have been a waste of time anyway, because we'd have been selling to like hobbyists and small companies and stuff that had basically like no budget. And it took us time to be able to land our product in companies that were like the related stage and had the budgets to spend money on our toolkit basically. And you, and you ended up working from a venture perspective. So you raised your, you got the seed deal done in 2020 with the pandemic. Yeah. Once it kind of fleshed out, you yeah. then sequentially raised your A almost like, like within a few okay. months and then you raised a B all within that. How did that work? What fund did you particularly end up working with? Were they yeah. just kind of preemptively investing or, you know, how did, did you start a new process every time? Like what did, what did the fundraising yeah. cycle look like for you? Yeah. So the A, the series A was like, it was basically preemptive. It's kind of someone that missed out on the seed round. And we had this big debate. We're like, well, do we take this or not? And we kind of felt, well, in the, uh, like, if we want to build, like, we want to have, like, this big, free, ubiquitous tool. Um, we want to really focus on that for a while. And we don't want to also be trying to do sales at the same time. Like, we better have some capital and a low spend, but not to spend it particularly fast. So this means we've just got that cushion to be long-term focus. And um, so that was, yeah, literally, like, uh, we just opportunity kind of came up as an opportunity and someone kind of floated like, do you want to do around 10 million or whatever? And so we kind of just took it and then and just moved on with our lives and just kept building. And then the, the B was like kind of similar. Like we just had an awful lot of demand. So yeah, it was like really, we ended up with a couple of term sheets, but like we only were speaking with like a handful of companies. I think we could have optimized harder for fundraise. We could have chosen deliberately to like, okay, let's run like a really big process or whatever and try and get like a high valuation. But we kind of felt like, hey, we can just take this and, I know that like we just, I think we just felt like these are, the terms are decent anyway. We like fractionally increase this, and, but we're probably better served like getting a bigger valuation next time around, but like just maintaining focus on product the whole way through. So yeah, the B was also unusually quick. At this point though, the market was getting extremely hot. Like it was, it wasn't the peak of like mm-hmm. low interest rates at the end of 2021. It was the end yeah. of 2020, and, but it was starting to warm up. So I think the market also enabled B, which like realistically wouldn't happen today. But we didn't do a huge B either. Like we raised, like we raised fifteen million because we had like the entirety of our Series A capital, and also we had like most of our seed round left in our bank account as well. I mean, didn't have that many people, so we we're like, well, like let's just keep the rounds like small, so we don't dilute ourselves unnecessarily here. But again, like a bit more capital again means we can just like double down on just like basically focusing on getting a lot of weak active users for the first, for like the first year and a half. I think perhaps we raised a little bit too much with hindsight. Mm-hmm. You all raise now, obviously coming full circle, full circle with YC, the continuity fund, which yeah. was most recently announced that it was going to be discontinued. How do you think about it now? Like practically yeah. as you now approach these new waters, it seems like everything's brand yeah. new now, 2033 than it was then. How, how are you, how are you approaching that as you, as you move forward? Yeah. So the new market environment where it's like much tougher, actually it's, it's wound up suiting us really well. We grow not by hiring salespeople. We grow mm-hmm. by shipping. Uh, like literally we made the product better. We get more, our biggest lever is word of mouth growth. And that comes from our product being wider with more products inside of it, or it comes from each product being deeper and cooler and better and faster to use. 
so what we had started already believing anyway was we're not sure that like now I'm like, I'm not even sure that we need to race again. Like we're getting, like we'll be profitable towards the end of this year. Very strong default alive with a big cushion. So we still got a lot, bunch of capital left. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that if we raise like, I mean, the way it's kind of going revenue wise, like even if our revenue growth is exponential, even if we like pegged it and assumed it remains linear, we could like triple the size of our team next year. Which is a like very big increase from an engineering perspective to go from like mm-hmm. twenty eight engineers to like ninety ish or whatever that might be. Yep. So, like, if we then also raise more capital on top and just run our heart even further, I'm not sure we'll ship faster. And uh, so now it's kind of suited us quite well. Now we actually have like a basically we have like a bootstrappy kind of feeling. Like, if we fundraise further, it might be to have like a bit more capital in our bank account and to optimize for like our board and get the right people in. Um, but like, I'm not sure we'd want to do a gigantic one. I mean, maybe we'll change our opinion on that, but at the moment, like it's actually working kind of well, it's making things feel very smooth. And I think if market hadn't done this, we would have just got wrapped up in hype and perhaps would have just raised like needlessly. And then we'd have like a hundred people and we'd have like 60% of the revenue, whatever that we actually have at the moment. So having as much as I wouldn't have ever believed this, having a bit of a constraint on us, I think has meant we've made much more progress as a result. But I know for what if I were listening to this, I wouldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, things can change, but but it, it's good to be in a position of being able to have that freedom. As we know, a lot of companies that raised during the hype cycles, yeah, 2020 and late 2020 and 2021, you know, they, they might have ramped up the team, didn't ramp up revenue, and now they're in a position of like trying to figure it out. Uh, as we transition to this part of the show, I think we've gotten into the nitty gritty of fundraising sales. I mean, a lot of gyms you dropped on how to just get the early sales flywheel going. Talk about performance. You're a very performance driven person from the metrics that you, you kind of track and being super transparent. Also, you had a lifestyle before being a founder that you were into cycling and it seems like it's still a big part of your life. What are some areas like maybe talk a bit about that and, and how you, you know, are you cycling, you know, Hundreds of miles, or like, what, what is your what is your range? Are you on the Lance Armstrong type wave, or so, is it a little bit? No, I think I, it's, it's, no, it's quite interesting. Like, I spent, so I spent ten years to run and do cycling. And cycling was basically my main focus the whole way through from university. I did it full time afterwards. Like a lot of my friends were doing it full time too. Um, uh, it does put stuff into perspective. Like um, when people whinge that they're having a difficult day, it's like you're sat at like a freaking desk. At least you're not like trying to go down a mountain wearing lycra in the rain in the vesper kind of thing like with like hundreds of other people crashing around you or whatever and you've been on a bike for six hours in the cold like it's kind of so i think that's one it just gives you a bit of perspective there are other things similarly like being a parent for example that i think also give you a similar perspective and stuff where you're like okay i'm just a bit more balanced now like i've seen more stuff and i know what hard means so i think it like it i think it helped me grow up a little bit that way i actually got super lazy with it like i think it's I've got like a daughter who's nearly three and she's very ill. Uh, and I basically like, just didn't really do any exercise for like the first year and a half of her life. And I think I just got like, I was kind of, basically I was either working or looking after her and nothing else. Uh, and it's kind of really been like the last year or so that I've gone actually like, this isn't good. Like I need to also get exercise and health kind of in yeah. there. Uh, and I feel a million times better now that I'm trying to do my things. I think I'm quite an obsessive person, which is probably why I was trying to do cycling full time. It's why I like kind of like how far can we push this like freaking startup? And mm-hmm. so forcing myself to do health and that and family, I like the three things is about how many I can cope with at once. 
Mm. Yeah, but it wasn't my natural inclination. It was like, no, I like entirely have ditched exercise in favor of just like working all the time. Yeah. But I don't think that was the right thing to do. Just having like giving yourself a little bit of space. It's been great. Like I still have like a little gym, but I don't do that much. But I do be on the bike at the moment. Like I set up a home gym, which has been like a life changing thing because I can just use it. I like live in the countryside and it's have plenty yeah. of space and I can just go out and use it at like literally like midnight or whatever. Like I'll probably use it after this. Um, oh, okay, nice. but then like, it's so difficult. It, you can't, it takes you out of, like you have to focus on it. And mm-hmm. You can't be thinking about your startup in the background or whatever. So I think it just resets you a bit. And, and you, I mean, talking about that, I know, you know, being a parent, being a founder, uh, as much as you can understanding, you know, I'm glad I'm assuming your daughter is, she's doing better now, but she's, yes. she has, uh, you know, an illness that is just around, like what has been the challenges there? You know, I'm a father as well. My son's 14 months and, you know, it, it changes your whole trajectory of just how you plan your day, how you plan your yeah. life, how you manage your money. Uh, talk a bit about that. I mean, these circumstances are, are much more difficult than, than the many parents experience. How have you, how have you been able to withstand it? Uh, yeah, it's been really tough. Like she had, um, she got diagnosed with cancer in both her eyes when she was one. Um, so she had to go through, she had to have an eye removed. She had to have chemotherapy. Um, so we've really been like through the mill, uh, with yeah. like, with, it. um, very lucky. Like she's responded perfectly to all the treatments. So now we're just in like monitoring mode basically. Uh, but it was a good, like eight or nine extremely intense months kind of like also at the end of COVID. So we kind of had COVID, so you're kind of isolating all this stuff. And now if you're doing like chemotherapy, you also need to isolate because you have no immunity. So it's like an awful long time of like very, very like insular way of living, where it's like, we can't really do anything outside. And we've got all this stress, like worrying about how she's doing. I think the, uh, and then also like just raising kids is hard in general. Yeah. I think it took me a long time, like trying to work out what right schedule, like even just getting the schedule right made a big difference to me. Like I work, Initially, I was trying to do like, I was like, okay, I, before I had kids, I would basically just work until late and just give up when I felt like it and whatever. I wasn't really accountable to anyone else. After kids, I'm like, oh crap, I need to suddenly entirely change my working style. Like I have to like do nine to six and wrap up uh, and then like be totally done. And like, it just didn't suit how I like to work, which is like, I'd rather stretch it out and have like slightly lower intensity and be a little bit more thoughtful. And sometimes I screw around, frankly, in the day yeah. or go down rabbit holes and stuff. I think, that's like, I think people miss as being a parent and, you know, yeah. it's like you, you, you don't lose the time of work, but you just lose the time just to like mess around and yeah, or just like, go on the internet and do things that just waste time. It's like that time seems so much more far, few and far between, it seems like. Yeah. Like, I think it's a little bit like, um, it makes your life, I think, feel a bit like you're driving a car where it's like, okay, it doesn't take up like 100% of my focus, but it's like slightly tiring. Right. You can never totally yeah. chill. Or if you do, it's very, very like, it's always a sum kind of, it's like spending money on your credit card. Like it's going to bite you later <laughs> um, yeah. in some way or shape or form. So yeah, the way I kind of wound up tackling it was like, I kind of do nine to five and then a hard stop at five o'clock. I blocked out five till nine on my calendar. So that means like dinner, bedtime. I work, we work all remote. So I'm just working from home. So I've got zero commute yeah. time. It also means I can get her out the door before nine o'clock. So I have like a bunch of interaction with her before and after work. Then I start work again at night, like eight or nine o'clock in the evening, definitely by nine, sometimes by eight o'clock in the evening when she's asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just work until I'm tired. <laughs> and the thing I have dropped is basically I just watch hardly any TV. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which I uh, yeah. Are you, I mean, you seem like a very, like, you, you're a very curious person. Do you, are you reading a lot as well? Just how do you consume information? throughout the day to like, write. I mean, you're also a very, very avid writer on your, on your blog. How do you consume enough information to like 
put yeah. out and create that much content? Obviously, you probably have a team now working with it, but how, how do you, how do you, how does your content creation process work? Sure. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, I enjoy it, like, which I think helps. I think it'd be much harder if I didn't. I think I'm kind of lucky insofar as, well, lucky by design. We hire, I think it's part, well, there are a few factors. I think it's quite important that I don't feel rushed off my feet when I'm working because I don't think you get your best work out that way around if it's just like an insane rush totally all of the time because it's hard to think about the big picture. And frankly, when you start having a team, you're probably not supporting them properly if you're like working totally flat out because it just means you don't think about, like I think like running a startup is really complicated. It's like some multivariate problem where there are all these different variables and you don't really know what's causing growth. In the early days, you don't know what any of the variables are. You don't know who you should be selling to, what you should be selling, the problem you're solving, and you start gradually learning what each variable is. And you start realizing there are way more of them than you thought there were. So it's always kind of confusing. And I think if you, and then at the same time, you're getting like, you know, there's like stressful stuff happening. And there's lots of like individual contributor work to do that's kind of fun. Um, I think if you don't give yourself a bit of, like if you don't give yourself some time to like yank yourself out and just view it like a computer game, <laughs> Like, yeah. should we be even bothering with this at all? Like, should we just get rid of this part of work we're about to do? Should I even mm -hmm. bother responding to this email? If you don't ask yourself those kind of, don't give yourself a little bit of space to ask those questions, I think you can just do a lot of stupid work, frankly. <laughs> so I don't think I would be doing a great job if I felt like that. And so the way that I try and make that kind of happen, we have a big culture of autonomy at Postdoc. A lot of startups pay lip service to this, and we really mean it. We hire people that can suit well, like fairly minimalist direction. Um, so we'll hire people, we tend to hire people who are on the much more experienced side. Like I would guess the, num the average number of years experience our engineers have is probably like at least 10, maybe like 15. Um, so a bunch of people like that, that does have a lot of downsides too. It's more expensive, for example, you're going to have fewer people that need to get more done. But I think you're building like a really technical product, um, which is very complex. A smaller number of people who are stronger is better. And I also think in a remote setting, it's one of the patterns we've noticed is it's way there are a load of, we do have exceptions and there clearly are exceptions, but it's much, much more likely that a more experienced person will be successful in an all remote company is one of our things we have sort of just seen take place. Um, I think this happens for a variety of reasons. And I think a lot of people who are in their career perhaps benefit a bit more from kind of hanging out in an office with people. They need like a little bit more encouragement and like they don't maybe have the same level of intrinsic motivation that someone that has just been working for an extra 10 years may have, you know? So anyway, I think, um, yeah, having a team that are, can actually like frankly get on with it without me very successfully it means that I am able just to spend some time on this stuff. Like I write content for a couple of reasons. Like it helps us with, like it's a big part of our marketing strategy now. And like just, we just try and write stuff that's useful. The topic we yeah. know, I think the content, I think the thing we know, like we write about topics we understand and the only one I really understand is how postdoc works and what we're learning. Yeah. And so that's like a really easy one for me to cover and to make it authentic because it's something, it's all, I always try and make it like we did this, we learned X. And it also crystallizes what we're learning. Like for me, writing out makes me more opinionated because I'm like, hey, well, I've yeah. thought this through properly. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's super critical. I mean, I, you know, as a founder myself, starting this podcast, it's, it's really a part of it's that you're learning and you're getting these stories from folks like yourself just across various markets and opportunities. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's very, very critical, uh, James. So as we close, you're in London now. What's the, the lifestyle zeitgeist like there? You're originally from London. You spend probably time, some of your time here in the Bay Area. Yep. How, how is the lifestyle there as it, as it pertains to running a company? And, you know, it seems like you have like enough space and you're, you're, you're in a good, good place. Like what's it yep. like there as far as like the, the ecosystem? 
Yeah, so you're yeah, a little bit different. Like I actually live, I still um, like near London or whatever, but I'm actually quite like I live in the countryside, uh, yeah, country. like in a little village with like a couple of hundred people in it. Uh, so I like grow a bunch of my own food. I have like chickens, um, this kind of thing. Um, we again, maybe it's just like I've got all my like gardening, but the we for what. Like my uh, co-founder and I, like we definitely know there's like a buzz in San Francisco, like from doing YC there, and the network there is unbeatable. Basically, like I'm not that interested in trying to build a network anywhere else, frankly. Yeah. Um, like I list yeah. myself as like San Francisco on LinkedIn for a reason. We deliberately go to San Francisco four times a year at the moment for like one or two weeks each time, just to make sure we keep up the level of ambition. <laughs> because we start like the thing, we're inc- especially as we're getting bigger. Um, there aren't that many companies that are that similar to us in London at our stage anymore. So it's like, we kind of need to go over there to see people that are more, there's only like a very small handful here, um, that yeah. are bigger in the same sort of space. No I would say yeah. There's no tech week happening where you are, where there's like, I just came from a tech week event and like, I've been here six years, yeah. but it's like, it's crazy that like there are events right now on the hour that have like hundreds of yeah. people doing demo day and pitch practice and Silicon, you know, it's like, it is kind of fascinating to see how much is happening here, but you know, you all, you come back four times a year, uh, you have a presence, but you feel like you're, you know, you're good being where you are. You don't have to be here permanently. Yeah. I'm not sure. Honestly, like I, I can see on the one hand, like, I think if our, I'm pretty sure what would have happened if I like didn't have a family and our single, I think I just would have been there in a heartbeat um, for that kind of reason. Uh, I'm not sure that would have been the, led to the best performance for what we're working on. Like there's the industry we're in is really noisy. And I think we would have been more likely to build a point solution that fits in amongst everyone else. Cause I would kind of know everyone. I'd like to start thinking the same way as them. Whereas yeah. the reality is we're like, screw this. We think this industry is done the way it's building stuff at the moment. Like we've just built a whole lot in one thing. And I don't think we'd have that attitude if we were kind of like drinking the Kool-Aid every day. Um, yeah. other people are. So I think it does help a bit when you're building, again, it maybe is reflected in the nature of our product strategy. There are other products where like, I think if we're trying to do enterprise software and slotting into an ecosystem of tools, like being buddies with everyone in person would be very beneficial to us. Um, yes. Also our sales are very self-serve. So we don't really need to like show up to customers in person at tech companies and stuff. Again, if we were doing that, then we would need to be there. So. It just happens to suit the start of company. I don't know if it's causal, but it suits the start of company that we're building mm-hmm. and being there all the time. Um, mm. sort of thing. Well, that makes sense, James. Well, James, uh, James Hawkins, everyone on the stretch Four podcast talking, you know, everything from building an open source product, getting to paid customers, raising, you know, over 30 million in a matter of months during kind of a, a up cycle. The ups and lows, obviously the family aspect, being able to uh, mitigate that and still be able to do it. You know, like your situation obviously gives me clear, like there's really no excuses. You know, dealing with that with your daughter is very difficult. Can't imagine it. But I know that you've you've been able to persevere and and continue to build things. But James would love to have any parting words for the for the for the uh, audience. Any 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 recommendations? Obviously, sign up for PoseHog if they're looking for. Um, analytics and an open source solution, but any other things you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think it's like just two things really. Like I think one is um, <laughs> uh, people are very normal that build these big companies. Like it's kind of sh- like one thing we've seen as we got further along. It's like they're normal people. <laughs> they're very good. At, like really, like, they're opinionated and stuff. But like it's not like they're a different species to me. 
is one. And like, I don't think we appreciated that coming from outside. We're like, oh my God, this is like superstar people in San Francisco that are magic or something. And then when we got there, we're like, oh no, it's actually kind of underwhelming. Like we just need to like, the, the second point really is like, we just need to ship a lot of stuff fast <laughs> and, yeah. and learn by doing. And like, I think it's very underrated. Um, like just get stuff out the door, be quick um shots on call like those are the biggest sort of learnings really that we've had um, so yeah just like write the code do the thing um great procrastinate. no that's awesome and and, and i think we'll, we'll definitely link it in the show notes i think your ceo diaries are pretty pretty uh fascinating writing from a ceo like i read through some of those and they're very good very good content very dogmatic of how you should approach things as a founder uh, well, James, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, it's been great having you as a guest of the Stretch Four podcast. We will definitely look forward to more exciting announcements from the Post Hog team. Cool. Thanks so much, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.